Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Paul and his letter uh, to the Romans, the early church in Rome, but it's also um, really to all of us. It is a much larger uh, letter than that, and so um, I'm trying to get to the very core of the gospel of who God is uh, and that God is love, and so let's read now these wonderful words of life together. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us, and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. The year was 2006. We had been without a church home, without a place to worship for seven years, from 1999 till 2006. We finished the chapel um, at the time, our main sanctuary. Uh, It was an incredible time in the church, growing from about 120 people to nearly 300 um, in about 18 months. It was just chaotic and busy and wild and wonderful. And and my supervisor was coming, uh, my boss, uh, the district superintendent, Reverend Dan Pulver, and his big booming voice. And he was coming to check on us to host our first charge conference, this, this big annual meeting for the church. And on the front row sat our matriarch, Dorothy Dunlap. She was 95 years old at the time. And as we had done all of this planning and all of this work and all, of this, all these things to get ready for this day, Dan stood before us and began to talk to us about love of all things. And he started to describe love. And he asked us, he said, have you ever loved someone so deeply that they consumed your every thought? Have you ever loved someone in such a way where you ached if you weren't in their presence? Where you came to think that perhaps you might die if you were not back with them and the next day or two he looked at us and he said do you know that feeling and from the front row this little voice said no but my husband did (laughs) Dorothy was slaying it at 95 no I never felt like that but my husband yeah he he knew that yeah sure he did I looked at Dan I was like it's a tough crowd around here isn't it like yeah that's tough you know, Dan was onto something. This, this whole thing about love. Um, St. Augustine would say that all of us, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, in God. The love we all long for, friends, has arrived. That's why we gather at Christmas. The love that we all deeply long for in the innermost parts of our soul has a name. Jesus. That's why we gather. This love that each person on the planet longs for, we all long for, is now Emmanuel. God with us. In Chantal and I's first appointment, we served a little church called Friendship uh, out in the country. Um, They worshiped seven when we got there. And so we would sing out of a little book um, 
Used to, when you were at a small church, you had like the red hymnal and then Cokesbury. Uh, this little church had skipped by the red book and Cokesbury and went straight to Heavenly Highway Hymns. And, um, and so Heavenly Highway Hymns had a, has a, a song in it called The Love of God. And the words just really arrested me when I heard it. The first verse goes like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And then talking about the crucifixion, the songwriter says, the guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child, you and me, he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels song. My name is Mark Foster. I'm a senior founding pastor here, and I am excited to share with you about the love of God. It's the most important thing in all the world, in all the world. If you have your sermon notes, uh, I created those this week to help you. If they don't help you, don't pay attention to them. But they might help you and help hold you some of these concepts uh, with you as you, as you head home. Uh, they're also online, uh, if that might be helpful to you. Um, I want to start with a quote from Mother Teresa, and she says that the hunger for love is much more difficult to remove from us than even the hunger for bread. And I know for some of you, you love your bread. But think about that. I mean, this is, this is the deepest parts of us. And as we've done with, with the other uh, concepts of hope and peace and joy, if we really want to get to what love is, we also have to know what love is not. And first of all, love is not a feeling. Will you say that with me? Love is not a feeling. I always get nervous when a, a couple of, of any age comes to me and one of them says, you know, I'm just not feeling it anymore. I'm always like, get in line. I'm like, love is not a feeling. It's never been about a feeling. It's about a commitment. It's about a decision. And, and no one ever falls out of love. You might fall out of lust. That is a feeling. Um, certainly, as soon as you have kids and, um, you know, life comes on or, uh, you know, if, if you're like me, I let myself go the first six months. I gained like 30 pounds, like five pounds a, a month because, you know, before I was single and I would work out and, and run and things when I was lonely. And then Chantel came into my life and I was no longer lonely. So we would go eat Krispy Kreme donuts and um, <laughs> I wasn't dating anymore. I didn't care. I let myself go. It was beautiful. I'm sorry, honey. But it's not a feeling, thank the Lord. Right? It's not. And, and so the early church struggled with this too. Well, what is love? And, and certainly the folks in Corinth, they had all kinds of concepts about what it might be in all kinds of different temples, uh, largely around fertility cults uh, and around sexuality. And so Paul had to correct that. And he said, no, 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 love is not envious. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. Say this one with me. It's not... Rude? You ever found yourself being rude? It's not love. We're not like Christ when we're rude. And I know nobody struggles with the next one, irritable. And that's an easy one, right? Or resentful. That, that's not what love is. 
And really what we're talking about is, is moving from immature concepts and, and immature love to the love of God, the way love is meant to be, the love that changes the world. And, and the thing is, um, and it's okay to move through that, but we need not get stuck in our immature love. Because immature love, um, if you've ever been a seventh grade boy, uh, you know that the immature love looks like this. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look what I do. Look at me. And we love to do this for our parents or grandparents or particularly for girls about our same age. And that's how we injure ourselves, right? We, we try to do things that we're not ready to do because we're like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And, and unfortunately, some people never grow out of that. Their, their whole life remains, look at me, look at me. But just know that that's not love. That's narcissism. It's just not love. A mature love moves from look at me to the love of a grandma, a grandpa, a parent, a true friend that says, there you are. There you are. I see you. You are beautifully, wonderfully made. There you are. I see you. Dallas Willard says one of the most beautiful things about heaven is that there is no rejection there. You're seen perfectly. You're loved perfectly. There you are. There you are. I see you. And love always does what is best for the other. We see this in Christ, right? As he moves through his life, those who need a healing touch, he heals. Even though it may not be a convenient time for him or a good time for him, or he knows he's going to be on the cross soon or on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus stops, changes his course, and blesses people right where they are. He does what's best for others. So, what does the Bible say about this love, about this love of God? Well, first of all, love itself is from God. That's what we know. So if you ever really love, know that you are moving in God, and that's a beautiful thing. The Bible in 1 John says this, beloved, I love it that it says beloved, it just, I don't really know you, but you're, I'm going to call you beloved anyway, because that's just who the author is. Beloved, let us love one another, because love, read it with me, love is from God. Yeah, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And, and just like the other concepts, love begins and ends in God because God is love. So when you move in love, you're moving in God. And that's a beautiful thing. The converse is also true. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And particularly for us as Christians and particularly at Christmas, we know that God's love is revealed through who? Jesus. This is how we best understand God. Jesus is the word of God, and we understand all the other words of, um, about Jesus um, to tell us about God. When we hear Jesus, we're hearing God. When we see Jesus, we're seeing God. God's love is revealed through Jesus, both what he did, how he lived, and what he said. So God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his only son, right, in that day, they might have had 10, 15, 20 sons, which would not be as big a deal. But the, the scripture makes very clear that Jesus is the only son of God. And that's who God sends. It's as close a relationship as you can have. You could also think of it as God sends himself. Because as the Father is in me, I am in him and we are one. So God comes to earth that you and I, we might live through him in that love. And in this love... Not that we love God. And this is where a lot of religious folks get in trouble. 
It's not that we loved God. And, and when sometimes we think, well, I, I've done this, or I've taught Sunday school, or I helped with youth group, or I, I stepped into the three-year-old class for a few seconds before I lost my mind. And, and whatever it is, you know, we've done these things for God, or I give this way, or I serve that way, or whatever it might be. And, and the, the writer says, no, no, that's to miss it completely. No, God first loved us. And sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's nothing more for us to do in that sense. And to be able to begin to walk in the salvation of God. Because it has been done. And it's it's not based on us. It's not on our actions. And so we need to get out of the game of who's doing it better. But that's to miss the entire focus. It's not that we love God. It's not. The point is not our love for God, but God's love for us. The scriptures tell us that even Jesus prays for us, is, is sitting by God praying for us. And it is Jesus' faith in you. It is Jesus praying for you. Jesus knowing everything that you can do in him that matters. It's not so much what you think of you, it's what Jesus thinks of you. And he says you're beautifully and wonderfully made. Now I know some of you did not grow up with that concept, and I'm stretching you. It's okay. It's important that you know this. Even the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groans too deep for words, the Scripture tells us. So we, we have to get our eyes off of ourselves and on the things that are above, Colossians 3. Back to 1 John. So, beloved, since God loves us so much, we also ought to, what? Love one another. Now, this is a really tricky uh, piece to translate from the Greek to English to a way that we can live this out. Um, because... Um, it, it's really close to a works righteousness piece, and it, it's, it's close, but it doesn't cross. So, so hang in here with me for just a second. Have any of y'all ever bought um, like a program for your computer, and maybe it was even really expensive, or, or an application on your phone, and then it asks you for your passcode, but you don't know your passcode, but you have already purchased the thing, you own the thing, it is yours. It belongs to you. It's ready to work for you. But what you need is what? The passcode. But you don't know the passcode. Is there anything more frustrating? Well, as a 52-year-old man, probably not. But for, for the young kids, they're like, what's he talking about? Passcodes are easy. Um, so here's the thing. As you think about it like this. What the scripture says is that we authenticate we know God. By loving one another. Loving one another is your passcode to walk in your salvation. Okay? This is super important that you understand this. You didn't earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to get it or, or any of that that's been done for you. But if you want to walk in it, if you want the fullness of life that God has to offer, and we're going to talk more about this idea of salvation in a minute when we get to John 3.16 and the word sozo, which represents much greater than mental assent. But we authenticate, we put in our passcode in our faith when we love one another. That's the way you activate what has already been done for you and you begin to walk in it. Does it make sense? Really important you understand this. Because if you don't love one another, then the other stuff doesn't happen. This is your passcode. You've already bought it, it's already been purchased for you, right? I mean, you didn't even own it. I mean, just God gave it to you in Jesus, right? It's been given to you through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But you authenticate it by loving one another. That's what the scripture says. It's really important that we understand this. So Paul writes it like this. He says, love, this love we're talking about is patient, it's kind. 
It's not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. None of those things. It does not insist on its own way. Oh, now we're close. No, when you love, you're not insistent on your own way. And it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Right? It's never happy when you see something terrible happening to your enemy online. But it rejoices in the truth. That's what love does. So yes, love is patient. It's kind. It's content. It needs nothing. Right? It needs nothing. It's content. You need nothing for Christmas. You have everything you need. And it's humble. It doesn't have to be, look at me, look at me. It's able to say, there you are, wherever you might find yourself. And it's not stagnant. Um, And it's not um, dead. Love is alive. It's an action verb. Love acts. Scripture says it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And it never ends. Love never ends. And if we had a few weeks together, we could just sit here for a while and let this blow your mind. That whenever you do an act of love, you are moving in God, and that movement cannot be destroyed. It cannot be undone. Nothing on heaven or earth or under the earth can take away from it because love never ends. Now, other things like your own work, um, other words, these sorts of things, even knowledge, that all disappears. It's just dust. Your homes, your 401k, um, everything outside of love, dust. But when you act in love, when you do a loving thing for another person, it is a part of eternity. You are stepping into God who is eternal. And the things you do in love are unlike anything else that happens on the planet or on any other planet. It's eternal because love never ends. Some of my physics people are like, hold on. Yeah, this is, this is a big concept. That's what scripture says. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to come to an end. As for tongues, they're going to cease. Knowledge, even that comes to an end. Now, some of you have been to weddings and you've heard this. You're like, I know that. That's what they say at weddings. Um, but if you keep reading into chapter 14, here's, here's what we're supposed to do. Read, read it with me. Pursue love. Because love is God. Love is from God and God is love. So we pursue love. To say to pursue love and to pursue God is the same thing. Because God is love. And that will drive us into the spiritual gifts that we might help others. All the other gifts that come from God are generated by love. So that we are to pursue love. That's what we learn about love. Our founder, John Wesley, in the Methodist movement, uh, he was such a great, great person of God, theologian. And so even today, he, he speaks in um, to what we're looking at. And he says, love is not only the first and great command, but all of the commandments in one. And so he knew the scriptures forward and backward. He knew that when people asked Jesus, what's the greatest command? Jesus said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And another is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. And John Wesley said, yes, that's true. But everything that Jesus talks about and does, really, it's all wrapped up in love. And so what does love do? Well, the great gospel of John says, God so loved the world that he, what's the word? Gave. His only son, so that, what's the next word? Everyone. Not some, not good people even, but everyone. 
who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. So here's the thing we know about love. Jesus and God, they give. God gave. Love gives. You're never more like God than when you give. Now, giving can look all kinds of different ways. Giving your time, giving your attention, giving your resources, giving your life to others. Now, personally, I love John 3, 17 more than 16 because he puts an exclamation point on it. He says, indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to, say it with me, condemn the world. Now, that lie is still very alive and well in other places, even in other churches. And you just need to know that the Scripture could not be more clear. That God did not send Jesus to condemn people, but in order that the world might be what? Saved through him. Now we're back to that word saved. And this is a very tricky word. Because in a modern Western revivalist Christian culture, um, we take a huge concept and boil it down to mental assent. Or a prayer right before you say a bad word, before you wreck your car or whatever. Um, And it's just so much bigger than that. See, love does not condemn, but sends to save. Right? Didn't come to condemn the world, but sent his son to save the world. Well, what does sozo, if you look it up in the Greek, save, there is sozo. And sozo is the same word as heal. It, it, it's tied to shalom, where there's nothing missing, nothing broken. That things are right as they're intended to be, as God wants them to be. And so what Jesus comes to do is to make things right. Not later, although that'll happen too, but right now. And so when John the Baptist's followers asked Jesus' followers, hey, um, from jail, because John was in jail, he says, is, is this Jesus, the, the, my followers want to know, is, is, is this Jesus the Messiah, the one to come, or is it another? And what does Jesus say? He says, well, you tell John, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised. What do you think? That's what Messiah does. That's what salvation is. To make those things that the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised. Makes things right. Makes things right. That's what salvation is about. It's a huge concept of something that's at work now and lasts forever. Because it is the love of God in action. To change the world. To bring heaven to earth. Which is what we pray every week. And we have a part to play in that. Now... Um, I believe that Billy Graham was the greatest evangelist of my lifetime. And um, I'm, if you go all time, it's like him and St. Patrick. There's some really close races. But anyway, in my lifetime, I think Billy Graham has it down. Um, and, you know, the church in the last 10 years in particular has spent a lot of time arguing about uh, judgment and who does and who doesn't, and who's in, who's out, and all that nonsense. And Billy Graham, I think, got it right years ago. And he simply said this, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict alone it is god's job to judge because god alone has the right heart and the right amount of knowledge to judge rightly no one else certainly not us and he says and my job is to love i don't know about you but i think that's really good advice right so holy spirit's job to convict god's job to judge and my job to love i I just think he's right about that and allows your life to get streamlined and really clear It also makes Christmas dinner easier. Really, it does. So what does this love look like? Well, Jesus then and now understands that religious people will often turn uh, the things of God to their advantage. 
to where they're in and others are out because it gives them power. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get to play that game with me and dad. We don't do that. So in, in the Gospel of Luke, there's this interesting story. It's actually three stories back to back. It's called the Gospel Within the Gospel. And it goes like this. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. They were not happy about it. So Jesus told them this parable. Notice that Jesus is speaking directly back to the grumblers. And he says, hold on a minute. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep, because dad and I have a lot more than a hundred sheep, which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? You would do that, you so-and-sos. Don't, don't talk to me about who I can eat with or don't eat with. You know what you would do. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, and, and what does he do? He rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, read it with me, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost, just so I tell you, go ahead and read with me, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon would say that in these stories, Jesus describes three kinds of sinners. The first, he calls a sheep sinner. Anybody do 4-H, FFA, raise sheep, show sheep? Sheep are beautiful animals, sweet but dull. And so if you're a little sheep, you simply go out to pasture. And if you've been to Israel, you know there's not a lot of grass. And so you're always looking for grass. You're like, eat a little bit, nibble, eat a little bit, nibble, eat a little bit, nibble. You look up, I'm lost. I mean, it's just that simple. They're sweet, sweet, sweet but they can't find their way to anything. I mean, that's why they need a shepherd. And so what we find in this story is that uh, there are people in this world that simply cannot save themselves. They are are 'er ne'er-do-wells. They they are the people that when you talk about them in small group, you go, bless their heart. (laughs) You know that. Now, now the thing is, you know who they are, but if that's you, you don't know that it's you. That's just, that's, that's who this is. And Charles Spurgeon says that's just the reality of it. And that God's heart seeks those who lack the ability to find him. God is that good. And we understand this, really. I mean, sweet people who need help, we help them. It's just the right thing to do. That's what love does. We don't really struggle with that concept. But then Jesus tells another story, which is a little harder. He says, or what woman having ten silver coins... If she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, read it with me, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is using this gift of alliteration to help people understand the heart of God and what happens when people come home to him. Again, Spurgeon would say that um, this is not a sweet sheep. This is a person that starts running with the wrong crowd. They're in somebody's pocket, so to speak. If you were a really important coin, um, you're not completely to blame, but you're kind of to blame. Um, And you all remember junior high where if you went out with a certain group of people or senior high or college that... When, when you were with them, good things just seemed to happen. You were in study group with these people and you made an A. Their mom brought you cookies and, and milk and maybe you went to Bible study or prayed together. I mean, it's just, just sort of all these really nice, wholesome things would happen. 
But then you also had this other set of friends that when they asked you to study, you knew pretty well that there would be no studying to be done. That you might find some alcohol or some other recreational drugs or you might do something that's a little sketchy and, you know, you're really always one or two, you know, ideas away from jail time. And, and it just, it's just, you know, just the way it, it is. And that's what Spurgeon's saying is going on here. You know, this coin, it didn't really get lost on its own. But the lady looks for it anyway because it's valuable. It's not about its ability to get back onto the bracelet. It's about its value. And God's divine concern is for the helpless those that cannot get to him, those that don't have any clue how, are those who just find themselves in places that they don't think God would want to come. By the way, God does some of his best work in jails and in the dark, in the womb of Mary and in the tomb. God is at work in the dark, which is good news on winter solstice, by the way. Right? And then Jesus tells a third story that we still struggle with today. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his dad, Hey, Dad, give me all that is going to be mine when you're dead. I mean, can you imagine that conversation? You cannot imagine that conversation. Right? <laughs> this is my son, Noah, on the front row, home from college. Right? I mean, I don't know how that conversation would go in other homes. It would not go well in my home. Right? You're going to die someday, and you're going to split that between me and my other brother, so can you just go ahead and give it to me now? This next line slays me. So we did it. The dad loves so much that he's like, yeah, okay. If, if that's really what you need, yeah. So he did, he did. He divided his property. He actually had to go and sell property to give the son, which would be his later. And a few days later, this younger son, this so-and-so, he, he, he took it all. And he traveled to a distant country. And there he, what's the word? Squandered his property in dissolute living. Think Vegas. Right? I mean, it wasn't good, whatever his decisions were. And it didn't take long for him to lose it. And when he had spent everything, everything that his dad had worked for his whole life long and gave to him, a severe famine broke out throughout the country. And isn't that always the way it is? That when you are down, when you have lost your last penny and you are down on your luck, that's when famines hit, isn't it? Isn't that just the way life is? That's the way these stories go. It wasn't that a famine hit and he had plenty of money to buy some food and stock up. No, no, no. He loses it all and then the famine hits. And he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him to his field to feed his pigs. That's not a good thing if you're a Jewish boy. It's like the worst thing that could happen to you. And he would have gladly filled himself with what the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You know why? Because he was no longer at home. He wasn't with his people. He had chosen to be a big deal, to say, look at me, look at me, and he blew it. He left, and he had nothing. So as he thinks about this and his hunger and stench, he says, well, hold on a minute. How many of my father's hands have bread enough to spare, but I'm dying of hunger out here? I'm going to get up and go back to dad, and I'm going to say, dad, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not asking you to. Just hire me because I'm hungry. Just hire me. And so he sets off and he, and he goes to his father. Now, this next line at the bottom here, I think for me personally, are the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Because this is about the heart of God. This is who God is. Read them with me. But while he was still far off, 
The picture that Jesus paints about God is that God is a father who every night before dinner would go to the edge of the property, lean on the fence and look out and look into the western sky and and beg and pray for God to show him the silhouette of his son against the backdrop. Watching, waiting, hoping that his son would come home. That's the heart of God. And the scripture says when his father saw him, he was filled with what? Compassion. Not hatred, not anger, not I told you so. Compassion, mercy. And he ran to him. And he ran to him. And you got to know that Jewish men of that age did not run. They wore robes and it looked weird. They didn't do it. They wouldn't do it. It was disrespectful. But here he's so overcome with the love for his son that he runs to him. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And then the son says, dad, 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 I've sinned against you before heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says, like, stop, stop, stop. Come here. Let me smell you. You okay? Let me look at you. You don't have to say anything. You're home now. Hey, slaves, let's party. Come on, get the robe, the best one, put it on him, ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf steak tonight, boys. We're going to eat. And what's the word? That's love. That's what love does. Celebrates. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to say it with me. Celebrate. Not a little one. And this is what religious folks really struggle with, myself included. That God accepts and celebrates. Not just accepts, but celebrates those who rebel and return. Man, I prefer people who just do the right thing. Don't you? But that's not the heart of the Father. The heart of God loves all of his kids, and he celebrates those who have been far from him and are coming home. That's who we're to be as a church, in our homes, in our lives, in our work. Dallas Willard said something to me that I hope I never forget. He said, we must understand that God does not love us without liking us through gritted teeth as Christian love is sometimes thought to do. You ever caught yourself saying something like this to a friend? Well, I love my kids, but I don't like them much right now. Well, friends, that's not love at all. God loves you. God likes you. And he says, there you are. There you are. I see you right where you are. Come home. Come to me. Come to my arms. Let me wrap you up. We're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have to work on that one, aren't we? We're going to choose to like people as we love them. Because God likes you. He's not mad at you. He's not mad at you. I don't care what your pastor used to say. He's not. Pastors used to, to tell you that God was mad at you unless you helped in the children's department. It's not true. Help in the children's department. We need your help. But that's not true. We don't, we don't get to use things like that to get people to do what we want them to do. It's not right. God loves you right where you are. Now, one of the great things about being pastor here is that I've been here more than 20 years now. And when we started the church back in 99, 2000, uh, this little guy to the right, he's Noah. That's my littlest right here. And uh, the guy to his right is Reed Augusta. They're about two and a half and four at this time. This is a double stroller at... Disney World, the happiest place on earth. It's actually second happiest. This is the happiest place on earth. And um, 
But anyway, we packed up 29 bags between the Agosta family and the Foster family. They helped us uh, start the church. And, um, and so we went. It was a great time. And, um, you know, you, just, you watch these kids. They moved to Fort Worth a little bit before we got in the building. And um, Reed just became an incredible um, young man. He would uh, go to Africa and, and serve there this summer uh, to bless the people there. He would work at a Christian camp and bless the children and um, work with inner city youth and, at L.A. and uh, just an amazing kid. And so we were um, a little surprised. He, he wound up uh, going to uh, Abilene Christian. And um, a couple weeks ago, we got this photo. Uh, this is Michael Kate um, and Reed asking her to marry him. Now, we've known that little guy since he was tiny. And he comes to what is going to be one of the most important decisions of his entire life. And how scary that is and vulnerable that is to kneel down on one foot and say, I love you. I see you. There you are. Will you come to me? Will you spend the rest of your life with me? Can we do life together forever? Friends, the Bible says that you are the bride of Christ. That God is down on one knee and he's opened the box to you. And he's saying to you this morning, again, Will you be my bride? Will you love me back? I love you. You know this. It's all through the scriptures. I love you. I love you. I love you. Will you love me back? God is on one knee for you. By the way, she said yes. Michael Kate said yes. She said yes. Because every precious gift awaits a response. And God is waiting for you this morning. So, what action will you take this week to respond to God's love for you? It's real. It's there. He's waiting. What will you say? The last verse of the love of God um, is even more powerful to me. And so I asked um, the band if they would sing it with me, but I don't know that they're going to. Uh, there, come on, Kevin. Maybe Kevin will. And... Um, and so I, I want to I share with you the, the closing verse um, of this song. Um, and I just want you to, to hear the imagery. Uh, it's really quite wonderful. And sometimes um, when I need to or just when I want to, um, I'll sing these words to myself or back to God and just remember how good he is, that God is love. God comes from love. God is love. And when we are in love, we are a part of what God is doing. Could we with ink the ocean fill And were the skies of parchments made Were every stalk on earth a quill And every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above Would drain the ocean dry Nor could the scroll contain the whole Though stretched from sky to sky O oh, love of God, 
how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your love is unending from sky to sky, to fill the oceans, fill our hearts. Give us the courage to say yes to you this morning, to live in your love, to move in your love, to be surrounded by your love, and to love one another as our authentication that we belong to you. We pray this in the mighty and wonderful name, above all names who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.